a lot of the biggest consumer companies sort of start off that way, where even the founders themselves may not realize how big the thing that they're working on is going to be. This week, I speak to entrepreneur and angel investor Alad Gill, who is well known for working with high growth tech companies like Airbnb, Twitter, Google, Instacart, Coinbase, Stripe, and Square as they've grown from small companies into global brands. Across all these breakout companies, a set of common patterns has evolved into a repeatable playbook that Alad has made available to everyone on Amazon today called High Growth Handbook. High Growth Handbook features over a dozen interviews with some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Reid Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, and Aaron Levy. In this week's episode, we talk about why he invested in Airbnb early on, how to achieve product market fit and what to do after it, how to decide what to work on, recruiting for scale, how to pick the right executives while in a high growth company, and weird but exciting industries he's looking at. Thank you, Elad, for uh, joining on the show today. Ah, thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking about your history as an investor. When was the first time that you decided you wanted to become an angel investor? My investing started very organically. So what was happening was I had a few other friends who were starting companies right around the same time that I started my first company, Mixer Labs, which ended up getting acquired by Twitter. And a lot of my friends just started coming to me for advice in terms of their own fundraisers or as they thought about how to sell their company or do other things. And so people just started asking me since I was helping them out whether I wanted to invest in rounds as they came together. And I just said, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. So it really happened organically based on me just sort of helping out either friends or other people that I met in the entrepreneurial ecosystem and then that turning into investments. And what year was that? I think I made my first investment sometime around 2009. I'd have to double check. Do you remember that first investment? What was it? My first five investments basically included a company called Green Patch that ended up selling to Playdom, Optimizely, Airbnb, Food Z, and I think Uulish may have been my sort of first five, although I'd have to double check that. Cool. And were these all friends of yours or how did those come about and how did you decide to say yes? Subset were friends and then a subset were people that I just met through either the entrepreneurial ecosystem or I'd work with at Google or other places. So for example, I'd work with the Optimizely founders at Google. The Airbnb founders I met originally, I can't remember if it was through a Sequoia event or just through sort of the social scene that existed around founders back then. And then I helped them out a bit as they were raising their Series A. And so that's how I got the opportunity to invest there. And what about Airbnb story? How long did you know those founders before investing? I knew them for, I think, around six months or something like that before I invested, maybe a little bit longer. And what was that meeting like? Airbnb obviously wasn't a, you know, was a weird company when they went out to go and pitch. What was that like? Yeah, at the time I met them, there were about eight people and they were still working out of their apartment. So you'd walk into the apartment and there were people in the stairwell doing interviews and people doing meetings from the toilet and things like that in terms of from the bathroom, uh, simply because they've been running out of space, even just with a small team. You know, it was clear, I think at that point that it was really working or starting to work. I think people tend to discount early signs of traction too much. And so one of my big rules of thumb is if something is growing really nicely organically and it's compounding, you know, 20% month over month, that's actually a really strong sign that it may end up working at a much larger scale long-term. And so uh, sometimes, for example, if a company will have a thousand users and it grew to 1200 and then grew to 1400, uh, people will discount it because they say that's such a small user base. But in reality, that's often just a sign of really strong traction. Got it. And what was the first meeting like with Brian Chesky and how has he grown as an entrepreneur? Where have you seen him make development? 
I guess, as the years have gone by. So I was much more involved with Airbnb in the early days than now. But, you know, Brian has grown immensely as a founder and CEO. He's made very impressive moves and would have been tough situations relative to competition, relative to lobbyists from the hotel industry, relative to a variety of things. And so, and in general, at the same time, navigating all the things you have to do when a company's growing at immense speed. So yeah, he's one of those founders who's really been exceptional in terms of living the CEO role and growing and stretching with it as the company has grown and stretched. I remember a couple early meetings, you know, honestly, I remember once or twice just seeing him and Joe, Gabby, one of the other founders or him and Nate and talking through one or two questions or issues from the company. You know, there's one time where I went to visit the company, they were still working out of their old apartment. And, you know, there was people doing interviews in the stairwell and phone calls from the bathroom and things like that. I mean, it's a small apartment and the entire company is working out of it. And so, you know, there's, there's these very early sort of startup moments that you remember. I actually went to their holiday party maybe three years ago, something like that. And at the time they were, I don't know the exact number, I'm making up a number in the thousands of people or something. And everybody was dressed up and, you know, it was, it was amazing to see how far they'd come. And, you know, as an investor, you do very little, honestly, to, to impact the success of a company. It's really the founders who do everything, but I couldn't help but feel a little bit, you know, teary eyed about the fact that these folks had driven something so far and built something so incredible. So, you know, it is, you know, sometimes you look back many years later and you're like, this is amazing that there's thousands of people employed now through this company and all these lives have been impacted not only in terms of the users, but the people who've joined and believed and contributed. And the impact it's had on them and their families is pretty massive. So, you know, that that was a really key moment. You have this book that just came out, High Growth Handbook. What's the book about and why did you decide to write it? I wrote the book because I found that late stage founders, so people who had anywhere above 50 employees and were growing at a fast pace, uh, tended to ask the same questions over and over. Um, and unlike early stage companies, there just isn't a lot of content written about anything after zero to one. And so while there's a lot of early stage content around how do you raise your first round of financing, there's very little information about how do you think about a tender offering? or How do you think about buying other companies? How do you think about hiring execs or doing a reorg? What's the real role of a CEO as a company scales? And what should you or should you not be spending time on? How do you think about board management? And so these common questions kept coming up. And so really, the focus of the book is tactical content that helps people understand how to navigate these common issues or these common patterns, because just as there are common patterns for early stage companies, there's common patterns for late stage companies. And so I ended up writing a lot of original sort of tactical advice on that. And then I supplemented or complemented that with interviews with different people around different topics. So for example, I have a conversation with Reed Hoffman around board and board management in a section around how do you generate or construct a great board of directors and how do you manage it and how do you add or subtract board members? Or I talked with Aaron Levy about the role of a COO and why did Box add a COO reasonably early in a section where I talk about COOs and executives. Or there's a great conversation with Rita Sangvi from Facebook and Dropbox around how do you hire somebody who's going to be a gap filler and as she calls it, a band-aid and somebody who's going to help build out different areas that don't exist from an executive function. Or there's a conversation with Shannon Stebo Brayton around, you know, how do you think about marketing at different scales for different companies and what's the role of comms versus product marketing versus other areas? And so really the focus of the book is high growth and breakout companies and how do you go about scaling those companies once they start working? You interviewed a lot of amazing people. What have you learned from Reed Hoffman? Yeah, Reed, I think is... One 
one of the most brilliant people in Silicon Valley. Every time we'd meet with him as a startup, he funded my first company. He would remember everything that we'd ever told him. So it was a, you know, amazing memory. I think there's three key insights. Number one is good people can do ridiculously well. Reed Hoffman is sort of a man. She helps everybody that he can. I mean, he's, he's one of those sort of true good people with a capital G and he's obviously done amazingly well as well. And so sort of the myth of the founder and investor is jerk. I think he sort of does away with. And second, I think he really has this view that you should only invest in something that can be worth a billion dollars or more. And so he thinks it's the same amount of effort to invest in small things as it is in big things. So you may as well focus on the big things. And then lastly, one point that he often would raise is that the most interesting companies start off looking a little bit weird. It's sort of like Chris Dixon's view that the biggest consumer companies start off looking like toys. And Reed's view was always that the way that you tackle incumbents is you sort of come at something or a product or a market from a side angle and then grow from there. Vinod Kosa has a similar saying, which is your market entry strategy is different from your market disruption strategy. And I think all three of those are sort of a different lens on the same concept. What have you learned from Miriam Nafisi? Miriam is a really successful investor and board member in addition to running Minted. So she's on the boards of Yelp. She was part of the board of Polyvore, which sold the Yahoo. And I think there's two or three things that are really key about her. Number one is she's a great portfolio thinker. And so I think she views things through both the product lens, like many of us do in Silicon Valley, but she also views things more through the financial lens. So for example, at Minted, they think very hard about ROI when they add new lines of business. And so I think she has more of a financial orientation, which really creates a new perspective. And I think that's one of the reasons she's really effective at the board level. How did you meet Miriam? I met Miriam as co-invested in a company called Crave Together, which was a startup that we funded, I think almost 10 years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago, something like that. And she uh, hosted a salon for all of the Crave investors. Basically, all the angels got together along with the, with the founders to talk about the business and to hang out. And so that's how I met her originally. And does that happen often? Like, have you been to a salon? where a startup founder invites all of the investors to, to discuss? Yeah, so, Salon makes it sound really fancy. I should have used a simpler word like a hangout, you know? Uh, basically, in her case, though, she's such a great host that, you know, things came together really nicely there. But yeah, I think one of the things that I think founders can do more frequently is really make sure that they make use of their angels. Part of that is sending out regular updates and providing a mechanism for clear communication flow. But another one is once a quarter or once every few quarters, getting at least a core set of your angels together walk them through some progress on the business and then have a group discussion. I think that's especially relevant if you don't have a board, although it can be very useful if you do, because it just allows people to rip off of each other to sort of compete to try and help you as much as possible as follow-ups and things like that. And it also creates a nice sense of community between the angels themselves. And also it means that when your angels run into each other at different events or other things later, you're top of mind. And so they sort of start talking about how they can come together to help you. Yeah, that's a, a really good idea. What have you learned from Sam Altman? Yeah, Sam is an incredibly strong investor. And so number one is really doubling down on areas of conviction and going big into things that you believe. Second, he's really innovative and thinking ahead on the curve in terms of what are new areas that you should get involved with. And then lastly, I think in the context of YC, he's done a really great job of sort of broadening their mission and building out different areas or working with people who are great on the team to build out those areas. So for example, Ali Robani is running the Continuity Fund, which is sort of their later stage efforts. Michael Seibel is driving Core YC. 
Aaron Harris has started this new, really interesting Series A program. Jeff Ralston's done this really cool angel program. And so there's all these really interesting projects and programs that are being driven by individual partners under the broader rubric of YC, which I think are a very exciting expansion of, of how um, YC is helping founders. And what's your view on YC as they've grown? It's sort of one of the most powerful mechanisms for startup formation. And, you know, they're really helpful and supportive to founders. So this is a book kind of like takes you once you find product market fit, then what happens next? Is that correct? Exactly. This is you found product market fit, things start growing like crazy. And usually what happens at that moment is the company really starts falling over <laughs> because you don't have the people and processes in place to really scale beyond a certain point. And every CEO or every founder at that moment has to go through a transition where they realize that they now have two products that they're building. They're building their product, which they're shipping to customers, and it has its own milestones and roadmap. And then they have an organization that they're building effectively as a product. Their company becomes a product, and they really have to ask themselves, how do I build a world-class company? And that includes hiring executives, it includes certain processes, and it also includes adding new functions and scaling them up. Got it. From your experience, post-product market fit, what is the single number one problem that you've seen companies mess up on? Usually the biggest issue that people face post-product market fit is not scaling their organization rapidly enough or not hiring the right executives in place. So really most of the issues end up being people issues. Every once in a while, you have a late stage company that gets killed by competition. You know, Microsoft famously crushed a number of companies in the late 80s and early 90s. But in general, usually when startups fail, it's through failure of organization and failure of people versus a competitive threat. What about pre-product market fit? Do you have a playbook around that of how to get product market fit? I think for pre-product market fit, there's almost two ways to get there. One way is to build something that people repeatedly need over and over again. And to some extent, this is most SaaS companies where you either have a piece of infrastructure that people really need that nobody's built yet or people built badly. And so that's things like Stripe or PagerDuty or Optimizely for A-B testing or Checker. You know, there are these companies where the same thing needs to get done by every business and nobody's built a good enough solution for it. And that's most of sort of the enterprise world. And there's all sorts of books around customer development and how do you go about doing that? There's the four stages of epiphany and the Lean Startup book and others that sort of cover different approaches to that. The second is really consumer companies and that's much more difficult. And I think that's largely a game of iteration and experimentation because most consumer companies start out feeling kind of weird and uncertain. And I think Chris Dixon uh, put it, you know, these things start off feeling like a toy and then eventually they become a massive mainstream service. And in general, those things tend to happen much more organically. You know, Uber is a great example where, you know, ultimately the founders set it up in part because they thought it'd be really cool versus because they thought it was going to be such a massive opportunity. And I think a lot of the biggest consumer companies sort of start off that way where even the founders themselves may not realize how big the thing that they're working on is going to be. To that point, if you're a young or aspiring founder, how do you decide what to work on? Do you have any advice around that? I think there's a few different approaches, and I think it really depends on the founder. I think there's this notion of founder market fit, like what's the market that fits well for a specific founder and what skills do you have? If you're very introverted and infrastructure focused, you may not want to go and build a company where most of the activity of the company is going to be driven through sales, unless you find somebody who's a co-founder who's complimentary who can cover that side for you. And so it depends a little bit on the personality of the person, on their network, on the things they know, and the experiences they've had in the past 
past. For example, Mailgun would be a good example. You know, the Mailgun team had built the same email service over and over internally for different companies, and they just decided to build a generic solution that anybody could use. So that was a great example where the founders just happened to have to build the same thing a few times, and so they realized it was a broader market need, and they went and built it. So that was good sort of founder market fit. You know, So it, it depends a little bit on the type of product and the type of background that you have. And what do you wish you had started doing or done more of much earlier in your life, specifically like actions or activities or compounding effects? I would definitely have skipped my PhD and um, either started a company or moved out to Silicon Valley earlier. So the one thing is, I think coming to Silicon Valley has a huge impact because it really is still the epicenter of all of technology. And if you follow them with the right network of people, you can really get exposed to outsized things rapidly. When I was first getting started, there wasn't a lot of the infrastructure in place to actually learn about startups and participate in them. So there was no Y Combinator. There wasn't a lot of blogging or information about startups. And so I think today it's much easier to get plugged in very rapidly. For example, if I was moving here from another state and I wanted to start a company, maybe YC would be the best bet for me because it would quickly plug me in directly to a core entrepreneurial network and a core sort of uh, venture capital networks. And it would also give me a cohort of peers and a social group of people who all wanted to start companies and who are in technology. And so I think coming out here and then figuring out sort of what click or crew you want to be part of is really crucial. And if you look at Silicon Valley cycles, you find that people tend to work together over and over across different eras of stuff. And so, for example, a lot of the early Google people have now distributed to be executives at some of the top companies around Silicon Valley, like Claire Hughes Johnson is COO at Stripe, Dennis Woodside is COO at Dropbox, Cheryl is COO at Facebook. And these are all people off of the sort of core Google business and operations team. And many leading companies, Gusto would be another example, have a ex-Google person as one of their key, if not their key sort of business person. And so you do see this dispersion of networks over time. And so the question is to ask what network is the next to do that? And can you become part of it? Or alternatively, if what you want to do is go down the entrepreneurial route, then things like YC really fit the mechanism of plugging you in rapidly to a really broad base of people. And what are some ineffective things that you see people do when they move out to San Francisco? What are some of the areas we should avoid? I think a lot of people sort of get into the technology scene or entrepreneurial scene, but then don't do anything valuable. And so every five years, you see a set of people cycle out who sort of show up, they blog a bunch, and they go to all the events, but they don't actually accomplish anything. And then they kind of tend to burn out or cycle out. And so over time, I think um, a lack of accomplishment catches up with you. And people can sort of separate sort of the sizzle from the steak, as people used to put it. So I just think doing something valuable, doing something hard, creating something cool or interesting, like those are things that you should start focusing on early and, and sort of ask yourself, what can I do that's actually interesting and differentiated and useful versus, hey, can I just go to all the events and meet people? And how do you find untapped talent if those you know, builders sort of aren't at places where you think they are? How do you find diamonds in the rough? Yeah, I think for people who are in Silicon Valley, if you end up building something cool, a lot of people will sort of come to you. And so I've seen time and again, somebody will launch a small app or build some small uh, open source project, but it ends up getting adopted by a bunch of people and word just spreads. And so I do think the single best way to sort of get discovered in some sense is to do something useful or interesting. I mean, people in Silicon Valley tend to be pretty responsive to outreach assuming that person is both efficient with their time as well as packages things well. And so 
you know, I think you can also sort of move out and just reach out and see if you can find time with different people that you aspire to follow a similar career trajectory to or things like that. What do you do on a regular basis to make your life more efficient? Do you have any kind of morning, afternoon or evening routines? There's a few things. One is I try to exercise in the morning. So I think getting it out of the way immediately tends to get rid of any accumulation of crap in the day or excuses not to do it. Second, I think blocking out chunks of time to actually get work done is extremely helpful. Third is rapid email inbox management. So if you can answer an email immediately, do it, even if it's not perfect, versus going back and revisiting the same email over and over. And then lastly, is sort of proactively figuring out who you want to spend time with versus having it just sort of fall out of happenstance of who pings you. And so I think being proactive about what you want to do and where you want to spend time is important. And what are your biggest challenges right now? My biggest challenges are probably all around having enough time in the day to do everything that I want to do. A friend of mine wrote a blog post that I thought that was really good around how early in your career, the way you become successful is by saying yes to everything. In other words, you kind of volunteer to do the extra work, to do the extra project to go and help somebody, to go and do something. And that's sort of how you become successful because people view you as that dependable person who works really hard and comes through. And you know, you also allow for way more serendipity by saying yes to everything. And serendipity is really important, especially early on. Later on in your career, once you've been more and more successful, the real hard part is learning to say no to everything because suddenly you'll get outreach uh, from people who really aren't going to make good use of your time, you're going to become more and more reactive, and there's going to be way more asks on you as an individual. And I think one of the most difficult transitions people go through is they work so hard to be successful by saying yes to everything, and then they have to realize at some point they have to start saying no to everything because they're now on the opposite side of the dynamic. How do you go about making really hard decisions? Do you have any tactics like regret minimization? Or There's a few different frameworks. To You have two good options. Which one do you choose? And I think it's really contextual. One framework is to say, go to the thing that gives you the most future options in terms of paths that you can pursue. So an example would be, say that I worked on ads targeting my entire life, and then I had two roles that were offered to me. I could be the CEO of a consumer company, or I could be the CEO of an ads targeting company. And, and you can make this at any level, right? I'm going to be the PM for a consumer company or a PM for an ads company. I would then go to the consumer company because it broadens a set of things that you've worked on and it creates new optionality. Um, so one is sort of the optionality view. Um, second is the, you know, typically if you're choosing, for example, a new career or a new role, I would go for a role in a rapidly growing market over anything else. Because in general, markets tend to accelerate careers at the rate at which the market itself is growing. If you go into a slow moving market, which is growing slowly, you're just going to have very few career opportunities. The companies are going to be slower moving. People aren't going to move around as much. So there aren't going to be openings for you to move up the hierarchy. People will stick in their roles for really long periods of time. But also the companies themselves are not growing, which means within the organization that you join, you're just not going to have a lot of opportunities. If the company goes from 100 to 120 people over a five-year time span, they only add 20 people. There aren't a lot of new management options. If a company is growing from 100 people to 1,000 people over two, three years, which many breakout companies do, if you're employee number 100, you're going to have lots of opportunities over time as long as you earn them. Because every six months, you're going to be in a different company. They're going to need new managers. They're going to need new functions. They're going to need to have somebody fly out and open the London office that they know and trust. They're going to be starting a new product area and they're going to need somebody to run it. 
And so really going to high growth companies and high growth industries is the best way to optimize for a career. And so if it was a career decision, I'd basically optimize for a great network to be part of because these entrepreneurial networks work together again and again over, over different companies in different markets. And then secondly, I'd choose a market or a company that was growing very rapidly in a core market. You mentioned earlier hiring was a really big piece and scaling post kind of product market fit. Do you believe in recruiters? Like what, what are your thoughts on growing the team from 20 to 30 to 60 to, you know, to, to 150. Yeah, I think once you're on that fast growth rate, you really want to bring recruiting in-house and you not only want to bring it in-house, you actually end up starting to specialize roles over time. So you'll have, you know, separate sorcerers from recruiters, from potential recruiting coordinators, and you may have teams that are focused on each function and, and the rest of it. And so I do have a, a section of the book that sort of gets into how does your recruiting organization evolve as your company scales? And hiring one person a month is very different from hiring 100 people a month. And you're going to need very different recruiting organizations to do that. The other thing that you're going to need is real executive bandwidth to be able to lead and manage those individuals. And then you're also going to need some simple processes around onboarding, around goal setting, around a few different areas to make sure that all those new people are onboarded properly, they understand their role, they understand the tools available to them, and they're all pointed in sort of the same direction. Do you think founders should make bets on high growth people? Or do you think they should, you know, if they're looking for a COO, they should go to try to recruit a COO that's kind of proven? Uh, I would look for high growth proven people. <laughs> um, so I think when you're hiring, you're really hiring only 12 to 18 months ahead of where the company is. Because if the company is growing really rapidly, every 12 to 18 months, it's going to be a different company. You know, so if you go from 100 people to three or 400 people over 18 months, uh, you've basically gone through a very big shift in terms of the number of layers between the CEO and the average person in the company, right? You, you've added probably two, three layers at that point. And that means that the executives who are running these groups will have different skill sets from the, the people who were running a group when they had five people reporting to them. Maybe 18 months later, they have 50 people reporting to them. Um, some people are going to be able to scale exceptional, exceptionally well with that growth in that company. And some people will start to break as they hit that new scale. And some of those people will be able to learn to operate at that scale quickly and some won't. And so part of what you need to be doing ongoing as you're running a company that's breaking out is number one, constantly assessing your management team and your executives and figuring out who should keep going and, you know, who should either move into another role or be replaced. Second, you have to sort of think ahead in terms of who actually has bandwidth on the team to take on new things and who doesn't. And so a lot of org structure is sort of an exercise in pragmatism. You know, it's based a little bit on not only who has a skill set, but who actually has bandwidth available and who has good lieutenants to absorb additional duties or responsibilities. And then lastly, you need to really understand that because these things are rapidly changing, you may end up having to do frequent reorgs early on at the corporate level. And then as a company hits a certain scale, the executive team should be stable. And then you start doing more and more reorgs at the functional level. In other words, you may start reorging the product team more frequently because as you add more products or you buy companies or do other things, you're going to have to shift the alignment of that work. And so an important thing to do is to, to communicate to your employees that because the company's doing so well, it's going to grow really fast. And because it grows really fast, it's going to change a lot. And that change is perfectly normal. And the fact that you're doing a reorg every six months is perfectly normal because you have a different scale of company every six months. And that because you're growing so fast, every employee is going to have a lot of opportunities ahead of them. 
because what happens is if you're an employee at a high growth company, you start to freak out. You know, you worry that, you know, my coworker, my peer just got promoted above me. And what does it mean? And why didn't I get that promotion? And people end up with these big internal dialogues. And really what they should realize is three years later, they may be their boss's boss, you know? So it just all evolves very rapidly in a high growth company. And as long as they do a good job and focus on the right thing for the company, they'll probably have a very good career. If you're a founder of a high growth company, how do you know whether or not, um, you know, this executive is the right executive or this executive is contributing to this high growth? Because if you're a part of a, uh, yeah, you know, a company that's growing every single month, like I imagine things do hide in hide in large numbers. So how, how do you mitigate against that? I think it depends on the level you're talking about. If you're truly talking about the executive layer, it's usually pretty apparent that, that person isn't effective in their role or that they're breaking under the strain. And there's a few signs of it. I mean, you can even just see the person looking really ruffled and always being late to meetings. And, you know, you can see signs of somebody not catching up with the bandwidth. Maybe they swing into extreme micromanagement. You know, there's all sorts of, of, of sort of common signs that an executive isn't scaling. If a line employee is not scaling, it depends on what that really means. And hopefully you have a good sort of management layer that will help identify um, somebody having issues or is there a reason that they're not being productive? And there could be all sorts of reasons, like maybe it's the environment and maybe the company's not doing a great job of uh, giving them the tools or processes they need to be successful or the goals to be successful. So there could be lots of different levels in terms of why something, why a person isn't being effective or why things aren't working. And part of it, I think, is as a company, you're trying to create an environment where there are good management practices, there are simple lightweight processes that allow people to navigate the rest of the organization and to be effective. And, you know, really your focus as CEO of a high growth company is to ask, do I have the right people in place? And then do I have the right simple lightweight processes to align and support them? I think the hardest thing, honestly, is more when you have somebody who is an executive or leading a group who is good, but not great, especially if that person had been around since the very early days and you feel an enormous amount of loyalty to them, I think that's the hardest thing to navigate because a great executive makes a huge difference relative to a merely good one, but the merely good one feels kind of good enough to just leave it alone. Got it. Yeah, I could see how that would be a, a really big challenge if there's someone kind of was in the middle, not really great, but not really terrible either. Yeah, the decision is usually you should find somebody great and potentially that great person could help mentor the good person so that they can grow into a bigger role over time. But a lot of people don't make that move. And what about for, you know, someone kind of aspiring to be in this position, uh, aspiring to be a, a leader and a founder at, at a high growth company, clearly, you know, 99% of, the, of their time should probably be spent product market fit and getting there. But is there any advice you would give to someone like, hey, go, you know, take a public speaking class or go shadow a recruiter, see how they efficiently recruit people that, that you would do um, or that you would recommend kind of to do right now before being in that position? I think the key thing is that startups are ultimately team sports. And so you as the founder are not going to be great at every single function ever. And the key thing is, can you recruit and build a team of people who are great at all those different things? And then can you point them in the right direction and give them the resources to be successful and then set the vision and overall direction of the company? That's really sort of what the role of the CEO eventually becomes. And so I think the key is more about learning how to manage, lead, make trade-offs, simple processes, recruit great people, then it is about, you know, I should go and learn a specific function. When all is said and done, the caliber of the company 
is going to be driven by the caliber of the team that you can recruit once the company starts working. And then can you retain those people? Can you energize them? Can you point them in the right direction? Can you resolve conflicts on your staff? Uh, can you allocate resources properly? Can you push people who are probably professional operators to be bolder than they're used to and more aggressive than they're used to? So there's a lot of things I think that that you need to focus on that may be uniquely sort of founder driven. On that topic of becoming a magnet for talent and recruiting, what are some things you've seen successful founders do to strengthen that skill? I think one of the best exercises you can do is say that you're hiring a CFO. You should go and meet with the best CFOs in Silicon Valley or potentially in business and basically ask them a few simple questions around what do they view as the role of the CFO? What, do, what characteristics would they select for? How would they select for those characteristics? What questions would they ask candidates? And so it's less about trying to recruit one of these people, although you could obviously do that too, and more about learning from them about what do they view as the key characteristics and almost symptoms of excellence in a specific role, and then how can they teach you to select for that? And each role will have different criteria, and then there will be overlapping ones that are generic for any great person. But the best thing to do is just talk to people who live and breathe it every day and learn what they think. Got it. So you've invested in Airbnb, which pretty controversial to, to allow strangers to sleep in your home. I guess, what have you learned about controversy? And do you think founders should shy away from it, run towards it? I think there's a few different types of controversy. There's sort of politically charged controversy. And then there's almost what a lot of people would call contrarianism in terms of do most people think this is a good or bad idea. Anything that is obviously a good idea has to be pretty well mined, because otherwise, it's not obvious. So anything obvious tends to get covered very rapidly, and in some cases by big companies. So definitionally, the best startup ideas have to be non-obvious. And so then the question is, how do you find things that are non-obvious? And I think we talked about that a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, what are some of the things that you should be optimizing for as you start starting a company? And I think one of the things that often gets overlooked is a lot of the best consumer companies tend to capture existing behavior in a new form. And so Airbnb, for example, there was some of that behavior already happening on sites like Craigslist, which was effectively, hey, I'm renting out a room for a week or for a couple nights and you know, feel free to stay and I'll charge you X. But there's also organizations like Servas, uh, which I actually had traveled with, where the whole idea was you were supposed to stay with strangers. And so when I was in college or in grad school, I actually traveled on the service where you'd interview and then you'd receive a booklet, which literally would have a list of all the people in Italy, for example, that were willing to just host strangers for a night or two for free. And so there was a lot of this existing behavior that was already happening. And I think as an example, Airbnb really captured, codified and then expanded it and made it mainstream. And I think that was really the, the key thing that they did is they took something that was more niche and made it something that, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of people could participate in. Got it. What weird things are you looking at right now or weird spaces? Oh, uh, yeah. Founders? I think much of the crypto world is weird. So I think 99% of it is sort of speculative bubble, but 1% is actually incredibly innovative and important work. So I think most things in crypto are still considered pretty strange from sort of mainstream tech. So that'd be one example. And then the second area would be longevity and sort of anti-aging biopharma is another one that may be considered kind of weird, but I think is a huge opportunity. And on crypto, what are your thoughts on blockchain, Bitcoin, you know, any blockchain app? that you're really excited about? Yeah, I'm very long what I or a firm called Electric Capital would call the programmable money thesis, which is that fundamentally the first wave of crypto in terms of what it's really going to impact is our notion of store of value and our notion of money. 
And so I, I do think that Bitcoin, Ethereum, a few other things are very promising. I think privacy tokens like Zcash or Monero are super interesting. And then I think some smart contracting platforms, particularly as they relate to financial services on the one hand, or on non-fungible tokens or persistent digital goods on the other hand, are sort of the most interesting areas right now. Do you have any favorite books or podcasts? Um, Aside yeah, from high growth. Uh, I mean, that's the most amazing book. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> in terms of, uh, so in terms of books, I guess I'll give sort of two quick types of recommendations on the Silicon Valley book side. You know, obviously Ben Horitz's book is awesome. The Hard Things About Hard Things. I think Hamat Taneja's new book on Scaled is really interesting. Reid Hoffman has a few different great books, The Alliance, as well as he's coming out with Blitzscaling, which is a really good book around scaling as well. And then on the, and then obviously there's classics like Andy Grove's books are fantastic. On the non-Silicon Valley side, uh, one of my favorite all-times books is The Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And so it's sort of this weird magical realism book, but it's quite good. Cool. Well, this was really great. 